Hello, Mr. Rossi. Hey, what's up, Mike? How you doing, buddy? Pretty good, man. How you doing? Doing okay, man. I'm excited about tonight's show. Yeah, what a fucking uh, interesting, fascinating character we're talking about. Definitely, definitely. We're going to be talking about Captain Beefheart tonight. Yeah. Um, I got to say, man, you know, what What episode is this? We're up to like, what, 80? No, so this is um this is the uh, rock show seventy nine. Next show will be the eighty one. Okay, so this is seventy nine. For the last seventy eight shows, I've always been excited. Okay, and this one is even more so because I think I I, I mean I didn't realize how much I didn't know about this guy. And it just blew my mind when I started doing the research and, and I got so excited, like listening to the music and I, and, and it's kind of like, he's a guy, I always liked some of his stuff and some of it I'd never heard and some of it I didn't like, but just getting into it, it was, it was a lot of fun, man. I really got into it, you know? And, um, Mike, before we start, you know what, I, 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 um, which I I already told you we're probably gonna do a future episode on the uh, Trout Mask replica, right? Like a making of the Trout Mask replica album. What right? a fucking I mean, album, man! Twenty eight song and an hour of just shit. That how the fuck do you do this? <laughs> I, I have no idea how we made that record. I mean, like it's it, it's so hard to think about the discipline that that band must have had. I mean, they rehearsed it for eight months. But, I mean, it's got everything from blues to free jazz to poetry and out- outrageous, you know, noises and shit on the album, you know? Funny funny stuff in between the songs. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing record. Nothing like it. All right, so let's talk about a man called Don. Let's start it and uh, give me some information. What you got for me this week? Okay, well, Captain Beefheart was born Don Glenn Gliette in Glendale, California, on January 15th, 1941. Uh, his parents were from Arkansas, okay? And they, he, he used to claim that the Van Vliet name was, was from Peter Van Vliet, okay, who was a Dutch painter associated with Rembrandt. Yeah. Uh, so he kind of used, like, instead of Glenn Vliet, he would use the name Van Vliet, all right? And he also claimed that he was he was uh, related to Slim Pickens, believe it or not. Okay, <laughs> wow, which I thought was funny. For those who don't know, if you ever saw the movie Doctor Strangelove, he's the guy riding the bomb at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Van Vliet, as as a child, he was a child prodigy. All right, I was fascinated by that. Yeah, he was he was sculpting and painting at age three. Can you believe that? Okay. That's amazing. And he was obsessed with animals and dinosaurs for some reason. And he could sculpt or paint them like just off his, off the top of his head, just from his mind. He didn't need a picture or anything to give him a guide. He, he, he could just do it. And, you know, through his childhood, uh, he was doing that a lot. And by the age of nine, he, he won a children's sculpting competition at the Los Angeles Zoo. And it's interesting because the zoo itself is is a beautiful place. I've actually been there. It, it's an amazing it's an amazing zoo, and it's got an observatory inside called the Griffith Observatory. 
and it's it's a place that he would find solace in as a as a young man. He would go there visit. Uh, it was it was something that he was always fascinated with. There was a local tutor um, named Augustino Rodriguez, and he took interest in the young Vliet, and he tried to help him kind of advance in his sculpting. But unfortunately, uh, his parents didn't support too much his artistic endeavors, at least at first. Um, it was kind of like based on the idea that artists were, were homosexual and they didn't like that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he would even receive as a child, he would receive several scholarship offers for different art schools, all of which were refused. Okay. And including one that he had a chance to have six years in uh, with paid tuition to study marble sculpture. So his parents were not supportive, at least at first, but it didn't discourage him. He, he would paint and he would sculpt and his parents often had to like force feed him, stick him food under the door in his, where he used in the room where he used to do this work. He, cause he wouldn't come out. He would just be in there all day and, and wow. just working on his artwork. And this went on through a big chunk of his life, early life. And by the time he was 13, his family decided to move from, from Glendale, California, to uh, a town in the Mojave Desert called Lancaster. And it's kind of like a, a town on the outskirts of, of California near Edwards Air Force Base. Yep. And it was here that he would get into like uh, his music, basically. He would discover blues, particularly Delta Blues musician records, R&B uh, it's just something that when he first heard it, it struck him very hard and he got obsessed with it. And uh, he was interested in artists like Sun House, Robert Johnson, uh, jazz guys like John Coltrane or Ornette Coleman, uh, blues guys like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. Um, in his early teenage years, he kind of hung out with some local musicians, but he was still at that time focused on just his art. And basically, uh, this was the time when he moved to Lancaster, where he met Frank Zappa. He was a childhood friend, lifelong friend, really, of Frank Zappa. And the two of them would hang out every day. And they would listen to records, particularly R&B and blues records, maybe sometimes jazz albums. Uh, Liette had dropped out of school at a young age, as soon as he Yeah, very young. Yeah, he, he, he used to joke around and say he had like a half a day of kindergarten and that was it. But they say that he actually got to high school. But, you know, he, he did drop out. Uh, his father had suffered a heart attack. Uh, he had to help his family out. His father used to uh, work a bread truck. I think he would help him with that at times. But often, really, most of his time was spent listening to records and doing his art. And according to Frank Zappa, uh, he would often be screaming for his mother to give him a Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, give me a Pepsi. Exactly. But uh, you know what's the interesting? This is the kind of guy that he could have easily self. He could have even been a self reader, teach himself. He really didn't need to go to school. No, no, I don't think he was the type that fit in in school. Uh, I can relate to that in some ways with my own my own school years. Uh, it just, some people aren't made for that. Okay. Uh, I think he had, there's some evidence he had some, 
disabilities like dyslexia? Yeah, that's what that's what they were. I was just going to bring that up. I'd say that yeah, did he have a problem with dyslexia? Because that must have been crazy for him to like read music and stuff. He really couldn't. And, yeah, like he would have problems on stage reading cue cards. You know, like like the playlist, like people put that on the floor. The next song, he would he would have problems reading that sometimes, and band members would notice it. But I, I think in those days they didn't even have. Uh, uh, they didn't even know what that was. They didn't have a term for it in the 40s yeah. and 50s, you know? But uh, the Pepsi thing is funny because later on when he would be playing with Zappa during the Bongo Fury tour, uh, there would be a song that Zappa would write called Why Doesn't Someone Give Him a Pepsi? Because he was, <laughs> he was always asking for a Pepsi. But, <laughs> That's funny. Now, when Zappa got a little bit older, he began working with uh, engineer Paul Buff at the Cucamonga, California recording studio called PAL Studios. And Van Vliet and Zappa hung out and uh, they began collaborating musically. And they put this kind of like unofficial group together called The the Suits, okay? Yep. And and some early songs, you know, just the titles, you could tell it was Zappa-esque. It's like Cheryl's Cannon, Metal Man, has has won his wings, and uh, they would do like a Howlin' Wolf song or a uh, a Little Richard song called Slip It and Slide, and they would do it almost like a Howlin' Wolf version of it, you know? Uh, one thing that when Van Vliet got into singing is uh, he would he would emulate Howlin' Wolf. I was just going to say that Howlin' Wolf was definitely a big influence on his singing, and a lot of the... Um... There were a lot of black musicians were very influential in his singing. Yeah, um, Muddy Waters was too, uh, but I would say Howlin' Wolf was the guy that you know he looked at as a vocal style that he could do, and he didn't copy Howlin' Wolf because there's only one Howlin' Wolf. You no, can't, you can't be an exact copy, but he would use certain styles that that Wolf probably used. They never met. Okay, there's no evidence they ever met, but uh, they, they would they they would be like certain ways that he would sing, and you could feel that, it, especially some of the earlier songs too. Uh, you know, you you would hear it. They used to cover the song "Evil" early on in in the Captain Beefheart band, uh, which is a Howlin' Wolf song, and he did it fantastically. Um, but Mike, I gotta tell you, when I first heard him sing, and I'm throwing it out there. I thought it was a. I thought it was a little black dude singing. He's got that voice. I really thought it was a. It's, it's almost like when you first saw Hootie and the Bluefoot, you thought it was a white dude. <laughs> I thought. I thought. I thought Captain Beefheart was was a black dude singing. Uh, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if many people did. Okay, because he had that soulful, rough voice that a lot of was, singers sounded like. It was incredible. I, I dude. I was listening to him before I before you even told me. I was listening to some of the songs because I like to listen. If I look at the artists, I like to listen to the song, right? To just to get a feel, and then I'll look at them, and it's like, oh my god! And when I looked at this guy, I was thinking, this is not what I thought. <laughs> now, now, to look at him and to hear him was like, how'd that voice come out of that guy? You know, but now. Let me tell you how he got the name, okay? How oh, he got that name. Zappa and, and him were working on a movie script. They had an idea, and it was going to be called Captain Beefheart versus the Grunt People. 
but really you got to wonder, well, what's a captain B fought? Okay. (laughs) Van Vliet's uncle lived in the house with him. And even though Van Vliet wasn't going to school, he had a bunch of people in the house. He had his uncle, he had his parents and his girlfriend at the time was actually living in the house too. And his uncle uh, supposedly used to go to the bathroom with the door open. And when Vliet's girlfriend, her name was Laurie Stone, used to be walking through the house, if if she passed by while he was there, he, he would say he'd be talking about his penis, and he would say, "Ah, what a what a big hearty beef heart! It looks like a fine beef heart." He <laughs> <laughs> exposing himself to his girlfriend. That's nuts. Wow. Yeah. Now. <laughs> Uh, Captain Beefheart would attend the uh, Antelope Valley College briefly as an art major, but he only stayed a year. Uh, it didn't work out for him. So he ended up getting a job selling vacuum cleaners. And he actually, there's, there's a famous story that, that's totally true. He sold a vacuum cleaner to the author Aldous Huxley. He's the guy who wrote Brave New World. Okay. Wow. And the reason he he came to his house, this was a door to door thing. He just knocked on his door, tried to sell him the uh, the vacuum cleaner, and Huxley's like, you know, well, why should I buy it? And he says, well, I assure you, sir, this thing sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and Huxley bought it right there. He's like, okay. <laughs> wow. For a little while after that, he would manage a, a shoe store, but he wanted to get back to where Zappa was working in Cucamonga, California. So Zappa, uh, at that time, he, he was starting to get his career going, and he was a major influence on, on Captain Beefheart as far as getting him to be a musician professionally. There was, you know, there was some doubts he had. And stuff, but Zappa convinced him of, of that he could do this. He 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 not only did he develop that vocal style that was similar to Howlin' Wolf, but he, he would learn to play the harmonica by himself too. No one taught him how to do that. Um, in early '65, he connected with a guy named Alex Snowfer. Okay, and he lived in Lancaster. He was a rhythm and blues guitarist. Uh, Snowfer was putting a band together. And this would be kind of the first incarnation of the Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. Now, Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, that would be his name. And and Snowford would change his name to Alex St. Clair. Now, right away, uh, A&M Records were interested in them. And, you know, this was the time of uh, the Rolling Stones starting out. The Beatles had already happened. Uh, any kind of like garage band kind of thing was was very popular, and this yeah we, didn't the guy in the docket there was the the garage band that played in the living room, yeah yeah they didn't have a garage they played in the living room so <laughs> Alex yeah Alex St Clair said you know that we were a garage band that played in the living room right, <laughs> which I thought was a great saying in the documentary yeah. that was yeah. a great documentary it, it's true that was a great documentary for anybody interested uh it's called Captain Beefheart. Uh, under review and it's on YouTube for free. It's a good hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes. Good show. Um, A&M would sign them. All right. And uh, they had a guy named Leonard Grant as their manager and an early guitar player in the lineup was the guitarist, Ry Cooter. All right. Ry Cooter's a, a famous guitar player. He played with so many people in the seventies. 
um, they would release a version of the Bo Diddley song, Diddy Wah Diddy, which became a regional hit right off the bat in Los Angeles. Uh, did you listen to that song? Did what did no I I didn't you know what it was very hard to find some of the music on um Apple they don't have a lot they only got a few records and then Spotify I Spotify has a whole shitload man then I had to go to Spotify but I don't have a Spotify account and I I can only listen to thing because I got the free Spotify so I can only listen to thing in order so I couldn't get to some few things a few albums but they did they have a lot more but I did listen to uh the uh, the uh, trap. The um, uh, match, the drop, drop match. Drop, drop, yeah, I listened uh, well, to that album entirely because that album was just got me right off the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're gonna get to that. We're gonna talk a lot about it. But right. But now, I listened to like I listened to like some other stuff. Some other stuff that it had. Um, um, I think I heard Moonchild. I heard they had like they had like a bunch of songs, man. Because you know the thing where you don't own um. Spotify, they just uh they shuffle through like the yeah, category of hit six. They send you all kinds of crap before you get the good stuff. Yeah. Well, the the Diddy Wah Diddy single did really well regionally in California, in Southern California. But there was a follow up to that called Moonchild, and it was written by David Gates. David Gates would later be in a band in the seventies called Bread that were multi platinum. Um, this single did not do well, and the band at that point was playing like uh, venues in San Francisco, like the Avalon ballroom, because they kind of catered to underground music. All yes. right. But right off the bat, you, they, they had the, the popular Diddy Wah Diddy single, but the follow-ups didn't, didn't really do anything. So in 66, they approached A&M records about material they had for an album, but A&M rejected it as kind of like too negative a turn in their music. They kind of wanted them to be poppier, all right? And and they actually had recorded this album, okay, at an eight-track studio called Sunset Sound Studios. Um, so they were basically coming to A&M say, listen, we just made an album, all right? But they didn't want it. So by the end of 66, they ended up signing with Buddha Records. Their contract with A&M was done. And executive... Uh, of, of uh, Buddha was Bob Krasnow and Richard P Perry was a producer that got assigned to them. And what they would do is they would take that, that eight track recording and at the request of Perry, they would, they would compress it down to a four track at the RCA, stu RCA studios in Hollywood. Now you might say why they want to do that. All right. And really the band didn't, because when you do that, you compress the sound. It doesn't sound as good. Nah. And, you know, Perry was a, I think he was a first-time producer. I don't think he had a whole lot of experience. Uh, there may have been some reasons he wanted to do this, but I, I for, for the life of me, I have no idea. But Doug Moon, the guitar player in the band, would leave at this point over creative differences. And he, he, he didn't kind of... He didn't like the, the avant-garde direction the band was going, the, the arty kind of direction. He wanted to be just a straight-up blues guy, do kind of like Diddy Wah Diddy kind of stuff. But So he had to leave. But then drummer John French, also known as Drumbo, had joined the group, and he would be an anchor for the band for a long time. He would, he would be with them in the beginning here and leave for a little while and come back and, you know, 20-year-old guitar player Ry Cooter 
would be brought in now as a full member in the spring of 67 with Richard Perry producing those, those, those demos that they had. And uh, the album ended up being released in September of 67. It's called Safe as Milk. Yep. Now, Safe as Milk is a great album. I have to admit it. It's a fantastic album. It's probably about as commercial as you can get by Captain Beefheart. Uh, even some of the stuff in the early 70s when he tried to be more commercial after being totally avant-garde with Trout Mask Replica and Lick My Decals Off. We'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, but this album was, you know, it, it's got a little bit of everything. It's even got a little doo-wop on it, okay? It's kind of bluesy, kind of garage rock sounding. But there's one track on there that you got to listen to because it's really uh, like a sign of things to come. And it's a track called Electricity. Yeah, they have a sample. I heard that. I heard that one. Really good. Yeah, great song, but weird as hell. And almost like uh, almost like it doesn't belong on the album. Yeah. And, and they threw it on there. And, you know, it's, it's something that uh, when they were making the album, um, they... Beefheart wanted to have, because of the, the title Electricity, he wanted to have these like, you know, sh like sh saw, power saw sounding noises in it. And they just, you know, couldn't, couldn't create that in the studio. There was just no way to really do that. Uh, you couldn't just stick in like a, a sound effect of a power saw in the middle of the song. It just didn't work. And they would try different things. And, and Richard Perry kind of like without even asking the band threw in the sound of a theremin now do you know what a theremin is no what is that okay it's an instrument that you hear in a lot of like 1930s and 40s horror movies you know it's like oh okay yeah and, and you play it with like it's a very weird thing it's magnetic it's like there's like two magnets that stand straight up and you gotta touch I don't know how to explain it exactly you gotta touch the, the the air that's in between the magnets and it creates that sound and you could play that thing it's you got to be like it, there's actually you go to art school to learn how to play this fucking thing that's the kind wow. of wow and i've seen people in the subway play it it's pretty wild okay? wow but um it was the, the song electricity was a song written as a poem by beefheart's friend herb berman and it's got weird vocals it's got that whole strange kind of like offbeat instrumentation. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that guitarist Doug Moon didn't like. So that's the kind of reason he left the band. But uh, when he was replaced by Ry Cooter, that was a big, you know, big upgrade because Ry Cooter is a great guitarist. Yeah. Now, at one point, uh, I got to make Let me ask, Let me answer a question. So you think... Um... That song of the Trinity, right? You think that's the one that was the song that pretty much after a while um could the Beatles took some of that stuff, got influenced by that later on? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh John Lennon and Paul McCartney were fans of that album, Safe as Milk. All right. They they heard it early on. It it, it got some promotion. Uh Buddha Records at the time was an up and coming label. They were kind of like a small label that, that signed underground bands. All right. Uh, they would eventually do like bubblegum 
music as well, like like you know, like uh, yummy, 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 and all that shit. You know, like <laughs> that stuff. But 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 in the beginning, they started out as like you know an underground label almost. And uh, yeah, um, Paul McCartney and John Lennon wanted to sign um, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. Wow. They had a label that they were going to start called Zapple Records. Now, they had Apple Records, but they wanted to start something called Zapple Records with a Z. And uh, it was an idea that they had that they would ha- like sign underground bands and new music. Okay. Kind of like all, what would be alternative music of the day, you know. And uh, but once they got the manager Alan Klein, they, they kind of like scrapped that whole thing. He, he wasn't for it. Okay. Uh, Beefheart actually had kind of an up and down relationship with the Beatles. He met Paul McCartney. He met John Lennon. Uh, but he used to criticize them, saying he was like sick of their lullaby songs. And like that one lyric in uh, in uh, A Day in the Life from the Sgt. Pepper album where Lennon says, I want to turn you on. Yeah. Okay. Beefheart hated that lyric. He thought it was like a conceited, ridiculous lyric. <laughs> okay. And he was also saying that, you know, he didn't like Lennon that much because when John Lennon and Yoko Ono did that bed in for peace where they stayed in bed. Yeah. Like a week or whatever the hell it was. Like Captain Beefheart sent him a telegraph of uh, to some show support, and like John Lennon never got back to him. Wow! About never thanked him for it. So he kind of had an up and down relationship with them. He didn't like them that much. He, he kind of um, had a, a relationship like that with like Frank Zappa. They would have a falling out eventually. Because they would, they would like, they would hang out, and then they would stop talking, and then you know, you know what happened later on. Uh, I mean, you know, we'll we'll get into some of the stuff on how Beefheart was to work with, okay? And oh. when Zappa worked, Zappa would work with him. It was hell. Yeah. Anybody, you know, anybody working with him. Um, <laughs> I'll give you an example here. Like at one point, uh, when when Don Moon was still in, Doug Moon was still in the band. Uh, Beefheart used to berate him and criticize him so bad that he would like fall down in tears almost and you know beg for him to leave him alone one time he was doing that to him and he just like ran into the other room and picked up a loaded crossbow gun okay a crossbow bow and arrow yeah. all right and he stuck it in Beefheart's face and Beefheart just turned to him and said, get that fucking thing out of here and go back to your room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was amazed by that. You know what the problem was? Like, he would, like a lot of his comments, like, there were comments that he would say, oh, the band failed me. They didn't do their work. Yeah, and if you didn't play it the way he would explain it. Or visualize he, it or hear it in his yeah, head. Right. That, you know, how are you supposed to read his fucking mind, right? You yeah. Know, that's what. But you had to learn to do that. That was the mad genius of the guy. Okay. It, it, it really, I mean, if you could live through that, it was amazing music that you were making and you knew it. But it was like to get to that point, you had to take a beating. But, but Mike, you know, you know what's funny about them? The, the music was loved later on. Like the music really didn't do great in the US, right? No, he bombed in the US his whole career pretty much. 
but, you know, he had a couple. He had a couple albums that cracked the top two hundred. I was kind of fascinated by that. That he, like, that's incredible. A guy like that, and then later on, you're like, but damn, what, what the fuck, man? Well, you know, he made he made all his money in Europe, particularly England, uh, France, Germany. They liked him, okay. And the weirder he was, the more avant garde music he was doing, like Trout Mask Replica, Lick My Decals Off. That that era. Okay, 69, 1970. Uh, they liked him more than than we did in America. No one, you know, he wasn't making a splash here at all. Even with Zappa's name and being involved, and we'll get into that in a minute, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't really translate to popularity in America. But the, the stranger he was making records, the more popular he was in Europe. And then when he tried to be more commercial, Europe let him go. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, when Safe as Milk came out, they were going to support the album with a tour, and they were scheduled to play the Monterey Pop Festival. Now, Beefheart at the time was a very heavy LSD user, and he would be given sometimes to panic attacks, which you can get when you're on acid. Oh yeah, and, that's uh, so fucking. You can see all kind of crazy shit. Exactly. Now, he had a show scheduled right before the Monterey Pop Festival uh, um, on June 10th and 11th. And he was supposed to play those two dates. But the band started playing a song called Electricity on the 10th. And he his eyes bugged out and he walked backwards off the stage and fell off the back of the stage. All right. 10 feet and he landed on Bob Krasnow from the record label and they were, he was actually managing the band at that point. Uh, he claimed that he saw a girl in the audience turn into a fish and had bubbles coming out of her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. He was having, he was having a, a good acid trip, right? There, he was right? tripping on acid like a motherfucker there. Now, but this kind of, this kind of shit would happen. Uh, and this kind of, you know, behavior, would be going on and and Ry Cooter decided to quit the band at that point because of the just the not only was it the complicated guitar parts that 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 Beefheart would make him do but it was this kind of activity like you know he wanted to play the Monterey Pop Festival and now because he got hurt and everything and he was freaked out they weren't going to do that show um so Mike let me ask you a weird question so at that time the guy that replaced him, did that guy play with the monkeys? Yes. His name is Jerry McGee, okay? And he would replace Ry Cooter um, in time for them to do some shows in August, but they, they didn't make that Monterey Pop Festival earlier. Uh, he was The guy's a great guitar player, Jerry McGee. If you listen to that monkey stuff early on, that's him. Wow. And uh, there was one show that they did in particular in August, uh, they opened for the Yardbirds at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Now, if you remember from uh, when we did our Black Flag show, yeah. which will be coming up, uh, that that the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium seats about 3,000. So yeah. That's a audience. Um, the lineup for this gig now was uh, Jeff Cotton would join on guitar to replace McGee in August of 67. Now, the, line heart, uh, the lineup at that part, point for Beefheart would be Beefheart singing, Alex St. Clair on guitar, 
Jeff Cotton on guitar, Jerry Hanley on bass, and John French on drums. All right. So now, the, the lineup changed significantly then. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ry Cooter was gone. Okay. So they would they would basically replace him two times before they, they settled in on uh on uh Jeff Cotton. Because McGee McGee was just temporary. Yeah, I um, think he was just doing a field and helping them out. Yeah, I, I, I he might have went back to the monkeys. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. They sixty seven or so the monkeys were still going strong. Yeah. Um now the second album they would work on is called Strictly Personal. And uh it, it, they were still on Buddha Records at this point. Um, originally, the album uh, was going to be called It Comes to You in a Plain Brown Wrapper. And the album actually looks like it's in brown wrapper, like a, like a, like a brown wrapper with an address on it and a return address, like that kind of thing, like a package. Okay. And um, they began recording it between October and November of 67. Um, but uh, Finishing the album, but, but Bob now at Buddha Records shelved it. He wouldn't release it. And he basically would decide to, to, to reproduce it. All right. And he put in against the band's, you know, uh, demands. They, they, they didn't want this. Okay. But he would put in what's called phasing and reverberation on a lot of tracks. Um, phasing was something that was popular at the time with a lot of psychedelic music. Jimi Hendrix used a lot of phasing. Okay, like, you ever hear, like, the song, Are You Experienced? Yeah. Okay, you know the beginning of that song? It's like, I can't, I can't do the, the sound good, but it's like, it sounds like a, a hissing kind of noise. Yeah. Okay, that's phasing. And you, what you do is you take the tape and you kind of, like, do a, <laughs> almost what DJs would do for scratching. Okay except you go back and forth with the tape, all right? And you get that. It, that's how you do it. Oh, man. That, now, today, today it's done with a little black box, and you play through it, okay? But in those days, you used to actually record the song, and the phasing would be added in after with that kind of like grabbing the tape back and forth and, and just, you know, running it with your hand, okay, to scratch it almost. And... uh He'd put that on a bunch of songs and he would add reverberation to uh, Beefheart's vocals. He would release the album in 1968 in that form. Um, but Beefheart said that all that was done without his knowledge. Now, the band says that that's actually not true. That Beefheart did know about some of these changes going in, but like he didn't tell them or something like that. But the record, Strictly Personal, ended up coming out on uh, Krasnow's Blue Thumb label because, like I said before, Buddha was making a turn and they were starting to put out bubblegum records. All right. So there was a, a division of Buddha called Blue Thumb that he was starting and he put it out on that, that division. Now, this album, released as Strictly Personal, was not the complete album that, that was originally done. Okay. When Krasnow got to it alone, he didn't release all the tracks. So what would happen is Strictly Personal was released with less tracks, the added phasing and reverberation. But some of the songs he left behind, and they would later be released in 1971 as the Mirror Man album. Now, Beefheart was no longer with Buddha in 71, so he had no control over this. 
So they just took the music and just put in yeah. another yeah, album you know, and released it. Yeah, they, 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 held, they held back some tracks and then came out with, like, another album. And they, they, they basically added some of these studio songs and they, they lied in the liner notes of Mirror Man, okay, because they were trying to avoid copyright issues. And they were saying that it was like a live jam session from 65. All right, so they, you know, they fucked them, basically. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask you a question. For, like, um, when you look at him, man, he was on a lot of record labels. What was the problem? Uh, well, he would never get a long-term record deal. Okay, he would never get something like three records. Nobody was going to give Beefheart three, four record deal. It, you know, it wasn't going to happen. He didn't sell enough for that. But, you know, he's, he's, it, it had to be his, the way he worked. Okay, and he was not easy to work with. No. You know, so he was on a lot of record labels. But he had enough popularity that he could walk into a record label and say, hey, I'm interested in it. They would listen to him. Okay, it wasn't like they laughed him out of the place. People didn't, you know, he didn't really get turned down later on, you know. But in June of 68, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band went to England. And over there, they were managed briefly by the Who's ex-manager named Pete Meaden. Now, originally, the band was supposed to play the UK, but they were not allowed in because Meaden illegally booked some gigs. They didn't have the right visas, work visas to play. So they ended up bypassing the UK at the beginning when they were supposed to play there. And they went to Germany instead. And uh, they had some really successful shows over there. Now, Beefheart was getting popular in England. And there was a big public outcry in the UK to have him come and play, even though he didn't have the right visas. So they got all that worked out somehow. But DJ John Peel who was very in- influential at the time in England. He had his own radio show. Yeah. He would play, he would have underground music. He would be big for many years. Uh, he would, they would make an appearance on the radio show, would be recorded, and uh, they would repair, appear at the Middle East. Middle, Middle Earth. Middle Earth, not Middle East. Yeah, Middle, Middle Earth. Earth. Middle Earth venue. Now, the Middle Earth venue, if you remember, was a spot that Mark Boland was playing at when he had Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yep. So I just was wondering if they ever met. You know, that would they have might been, have been, you know. They might have they might have been that. You never know. Um at when they were at Middle Earth, they ended up playing uh, a lot of the safest milk tracks and they were really received very well, very enthusiastically. Uh they were even surprised because fans were showing up with copies of Safest Milk to sign as autographs. Now keep in mind Safe as milk in England was an import and it was not cheap. So, you know, it was imported from America, just like we had imports from England. Okay. And, you know, so they were surprised that these expensive copies of safe as milk were being bought, but they were. And uh, later on in January, they would play a festival on the beach in Cannes, France as well. Um, Over the next year. So they're taking off in Europe. What you're telling me. doing very well. Yeah, they're doing very well in Europe, and that would be continuous. Let me ask you, were they good in Australia? The Australian pick it up? Anybody else? Any other continent or places? Uh, you know, I don't know if he ever went to Australia. I don't. I I I didn't see any evidence of that in my research. 
but it could be he could have made a trip over there at one point. The reason I'm uh, just saying because if he was so popular in the UK, like UK yeah. and, and all those places, they pretty much like almost the same music. Yeah, 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 they do, and uh, they tend to if, if if somebody's big in the UK, it tends to be big in Australia too. So I I don't know. I didn't. Uh, he may not have had the money to go to Australia. Okay. Just asking, you know, because I was curious. Because I also in my research, I saw nothing about Australia, which was like, wow, that's shocking. Yeah, yeah. Unless if you think about it, remember the Pretty Things episode we did. Yeah. Okay, and they got pretty. The Pretty Things got jammed up in New Zealand, and New Zealand wouldn't let them play. Oh yeah. Maybe Australia had a problem with some of these bands too at that time. Oh yeah, you know what? That, that, was, that, that might was, be the answer. <laughs> that was around the same time. So, I mean, New Zealand was the one that really banned them. But uh, who knows? Maybe Australia wasn't having that many acts come in. Maybe, yeah. Now, over the next year, the band would be in flux, okay? A lot of changes. Bassist Jerry Hanley and guitarist Alex Sinclair would leave the band. Now, Sinclair was there from the beginning. Yeah. uh, He would be replaced by a guy named Bill Hockelrode, okay? Now, by the middle of 68... Frank Zappa approached the band about signing them to one of his new labels that he was starting. Uh, He was starting one called Bizarre Records and one called Straight Records. Uh, Buddha Records had no more interest in them at this point and started putting out those bubblegum records. They had no interest. So the band was ecstatic because Zappa came to them and said, listen, you could be on one of my labels. It ended up being Straight Records, okay? And I'm going to give you complete creative control over any over everything which that is dangerous yeah for a guy like Beefheart, it was okay now this would be the epic recording trout mask replica all right now we'll get we'll get deep into this here now yeah mike let me tell you when when this guy started doing that album do you think he even had a clue that he was making like a masterpiece no i doubt it I think this guy made records as art to be art, and that was it. Especially this one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I'm not. You know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a a rock and roll purist at heart. Okay. And I don't really get into a lot of avant garde things as I do more now than I ever did. But I will say this, and just before we even talk about it. Trout Mask Replica is the most original rock record I've ever heard. All right. Uh, and, and, and I'm just saying, like, it's something that stands alone. There's nothing like it, nothing close. Um, you know, there's been bands that have made groundbreaking records. Uh, you know, you look at, like, the Ramones' first album. There was really nothing that sounded like it. But you could hear influences in the Ramones and say, okay, well, they like the Beach Boys. They, they're they into this or that. You know, you could kind of pick up little things. With Trout Mask Replica, other than a, a, a blues influence, but he would just do it in a way that he turned it upside down, the blues, you know, and, and did it, but you knew it was still the blues. And, but just the free jazz in there, it just, it's, it's just uh, an album that stands alone there's nothing like it it's a, it's not even ahead of its time it's just it's just alone <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah it's like 
there, there was, let me tell you, when that came out, there was nothing sounded like that album. No, no. People did not know what to make of that. Uh, a, a lot of critics, you know, would kill it. Years later, they would, you know, turn it around and say it's amazing. Okay. But, but in the beginning, it was, it was killed. Now, get into the preparation of it. What he did is, is they would rent a house in the Woodland Hills outside L.A., the whole band would live there communally, all together in the house. Now, the captain would demand complete autistic and even what he called emotional dominance over the other musicians. They were, you know, they were living together. You had Van Vliet, John French, Jeff Cotton. Um, they would use, on this album, they would use like alternative names. Like John French was called Drumbo. Jeff Cotton was called the Antenna Jimmy Siemens. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bill Hockelrad was was uh, Zoot Hornroll on guitar. You had Mark Boston, also known as uh, Rockette Morton, and the bass player Victor uh, uh, Victor Hayden was. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark Boston was the bass player, but Victor Hayden was the guy they brought in. He was called the Mascara Snake, and he would play like bass clarinet and stuff like that. He, a lot of the jazz stuff, all right, that you'd hear on that. Now, the atmosphere in that house was described almost as Manson-esque. Charles- Talking about that he had emotional control and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the atmosphere at that house was, was described as Manson-esque, Charles Manson-esque. Uh, nobody was allowed to, to leave the house, okay, uh, except maybe for food, and that wasn't very often. They had no money. They were living on food stamps and welfare, all right? Wow. Um, they were forced to practice 14 hours or more a day, all right? And, you know, John French said, like, at times they were living on a diet of, like, a cup full of soybeans a day. All right? Wow. They, they, had, they had nothing. Now, Frank Zappa had to actually bail out a couple of band members from jail one day because they were shoplifting food. And he, he saw them. They looked in such poor health, okay? They looked like cadavers, all right? They had an, they had an eight eaten. And, and, you know, at this point, drummer John French had a conversation with Beefheart. And Beefheart admitted to him that he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And... As a schizophrenic, he would often like be overly suspicious of people and think like they were conspiring against him and stuff like that. And, and that's true because like the captain's behavior over the years, a lot of times seemed like he would think that people were trying to, you know, mess with his career or mess with the album they were making or whatever. But uh, Zappa originally wanted to record that album live in the house, not use a studio. Uh, he would call it an ethnic field recording, all right? Now, Zappa's producer and engineer, uh, well, Zappa was producing the album, and there was an engineer named Dick Zunk, all right? Now, they started recording some backing tracks at the house with the musicians separated in individual rooms. Zappa thought the recordings all turned out well, but Captain Beefheart would become suspicious that Zappa was trying to just record the album on the cheap. So he insisted that they use a real studio. 
Zappa would capitulate on this, but some tracks or at least sections of them recorded in the house did end up on a product. For instance, uh, Hair Pie, Bake One. So Hair Pie, Bake One. Yeah. The final product was actually recorded at the house. What you hear on that album is, is recorded in the house. Some of the poems that and, and little spoken word shit that's in between the songs, like yeah. the thing called The Dust Blows Forward and The Dust Blows Back, and then there's uh, Orange Claw Hammer. They were all recorded on a cassette at the house and just, you know, put on to the final recording. They used Whitney Studios in Glendale, all right? Um, when they got to the studio, the musicians, they, they were in that house for eight months. I don't know if I mentioned that. All yeah, together that, for eight months. Now That's incredible. That's crazy yeah, how much. Yeah. And the and, guy was and, a lunatic. Oh, yeah, total lunatic. And And... All of the 20 instrumental tracks that had to be done were done in a six-hour recording session. That's it. They came into, into Whitney Studios, recorded it in six hours, and walked out. And Zappa was just in shock. Like, how, how could that be? All right? And they, and they said it's because we've been recording, you know, rehearsing this for eight months. They had it down as, like, second nature. All right? And you, when you listen to this album, to think it was just laid out and recorded in six hours and then there was some overdubbing and stuff added, but the basic tracks in, 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 in six hours, it's amazing, but they knew everything. So Beefheart spent the next few days putting in his vocals. Uh, he would, the way he would do it also was odd. He would, he would like a lot of times when people record their vocals, they'll hear the musical tracks in their headphones and they'll sing. And that'll be the recording, right? Yeah. What, he didn't want to wear he didn't want to wear earphones. What he did is he had a speaker that was like in another room, and he could hear the tracks, the music tracks through an open window in the in the studio that he was recording in, and that's what he heard. So it kind of like created this like out of sync kind of effect between the vocals and the music. And, it, you know, you listen to songs like Frownland, um, Moonlight on Vermont, China Pig, uh, Duckow Blues, Duckow Blues. Duckow Blues is named after a concentration camp, Duckow. Okay. But uh, uh, they sound almost like the vocals are out of sync with the music. And that whole album is just, if there's one way to describe it, it's just out of sync. The whole thing it is. It's out of it's 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 out of every instrument is out of sync. Things are out of tune, okay. But it was all fucking intentional, dude. But you know what? It sounded when you listen to the product, the final product. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Now, now this album would come out on Straight Records, Zappa's new label, on June 16th, 1969. Uh, but it wouldn't chart well in the states at all. It didn't crack the top. It was it was technically a commercial failure, right? Total total commercial failure in in America. But DJ John Peel back in the UK loved it. Would promote it. He loved it. He played it every week on his show. Something from it, and uh, it would go top forty. It was a top forty hit. All right, and you know this album and the follow up we're going to get to now. You want to hear something funny? That album finally in America was inducted into the United States National Recording Registry yes. in 2011. Can you believe that? 
Yeah. With all that yeah. shit, a commercial free in the U.S., but it still got... It took 40 years. That's well, incredible, it, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's considered, you know, it, it's put in the historical records as one of the most important albums ever made in the United States. That's that's what that is, okay? That's, that's what that recording uh, group you mentioned is. They look at recordings of everybody, and they put them in the museum, and they say, this is what we're going to keep as a record of the United States. So it's huge, okay, now, all right? And it's respected now. At the time, nobody knew what to make of it, Rob, uh, with that record. And yeah, Zappa, Zappa was making weird shit, okay? But, you know, this was just beyond weird, all right? But now, it was doing well in England. 1970 would come along, and, you know, you got to follow up. So they would work on a new album, and it was going to be called Lick My Decals Off, Baby. Yeah. <laughs> and now the album... What was up with these titles, man? <laughs> yeah, he's nuts. But, but he had a theme, okay? The theme and the idea of that title. And there's a, there's a title track, too. There's a song called that, all right? The idea was to get rid of all labels or decals and judge an album based on its own merit. So he was saying, lick my decals off, baby, like, like, don't don't judge me. Don't judge a book by its cover. Just listen to it. Listen to the album and don't judge it by anything you've heard before or any labels that you might know, okay? And I, I like that. I like that concept, all right? It's an interesting title. <laughs> it definitely is. Um, and, and, you know, and you know what's funny? He always had pretty good, amazing musicians. A lot of good musicians play with him, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he would always, yeah, you know, um, you know, Zappa too, all right? Uh, th there was a, these guys like uh, Beefheart, Zappa, Alice Cooper, uh, no matter who they, whatever they were doing, the musicians were always top notch. You're right, that's true. Uh, I don't know if people really can pull that off anymore, but but in those days, there were people that did. No matter what they did, they, they had a great backing band. Um, the lineup for this album would be the same as Trout Mask Replica, except uh, drummer John French, okay, uh, was not in the band. Okay, what happened was he, he remained friendly with the band, but he got thrown out. The captain actually threw him out of the band figuratively and physically because he threw him down the stairs in a fight. <laughs> okay. My and, God. Yeah, yeah, that was after Trout Mask was completed. But uh, tracks like Lick My Decals Off Baby and Dr. Dark were standouts, and the album was a whole, as a whole, is just as experimental as Trout Mask Replica, but it's a single album. Trout Mask Replica, remember, is a double album, all right? Yeah. Uh, it's shorter, and I, I find it as... It's almost more cohesive. Like it's 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 more maybe because it's a single album, it's still experimental, not quite as much. Okay, some of the tracks are really like structured, more like stuff in the way a song should be, the way you're used to it. All right. But um Art there was a guy named Art Trip the Third, okay, and he would replace John French on drums on that album. He was a, a member of Zappa's band. The Mothers of Invention. Okay. And that band uh, would tour in 1970 with ex-Magic Band guitarist Ry Cooter on the bill as well. 
Yep. So Rye, Rye Cooter was was like opening for Captain Beefheart. All right. Now by '72, Beefheart was becoming a bit tired of being like so avant-garde and experimental, and he kind of wanted what he said was he wanted to give the fans something to hang their hat on instead of scaring them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, the idea of being a little more commercial also stemmed from the fact that they were broke, okay, and still like on food stamps, all right? And they, they were living communally still. Uh, they had a house, a different house, um, in uh, Ben Lumond, California. And they had another one later near the town of Trinidad in California. Now, when they were going down this road to be more commercial, the, the return to the psychological manipulation would start again. Okay. And, uh, you know, Beefheart would turn his rage against Bill Harkel Road, the guitarist. And there was at one point where uh, they were starting to record the album or write the album, the Spotlight Kid. That would be the follow up. And uh, at one point, he was so frustrated with Harkel Road not being able to get what he was trying to do. He threw him in a dumpster. I, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and Hawker Road is on record saying, like, I think there was some metaphoric you know, meaning behind that. <laughs> but now the idea of, of, of this album, Spotlight Kid, that would be the name of it, was to kind of like do some slower, more blues-based sounds. Some songs almost have like a boogie beat to it. Um it was designed almost as a compromise between experimental music and commercial music. And it, it did chart the highest in the U S out of all of the captain B fart albums, that album, the spotlight kit got to number one thirty one. Wow. That's yeah. Now <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was tracks like I'm going to boogalorize you, baby. Uh, a song called Alice in Blunderland. Uh, yeah, it was like, it was weird. He was going with definitely some weird title. Like he's playing a catch on words. Yeah, I mean, they, you had to like listen close. That song I'm going to boogalorize you is fucking great. If you ever have a chance to see the video. Uh, it, <laughs> I just love the name of that song. Yeah, boogalorize yeah. you. Boogalorize you, yep. Now, they got some new fans with this, all right? Mainstream, more mainstream rock fans that were a little open-minded. Okay, they were able to get into it. But the Magic Band hated this direction they were going. Um, in October 72, the follow-up album to that would be released. So he put two albums out in the same year. Uh, this album was called Clear Spot. And it would be the band's seventh studio album. Beefheart had some small taste of commercial success with this last one, um, Spotlight Kid. So he would continue with this. And they would bring in producer Ted Templeman. Ted Templeman was a guy who had a lot of success with the Doobie Brothers, Carly Simon, and Van Morrison. And he would produce the album. Yeah. The record would come out released as a clear cover with the black vinyl scene almost as a visible spot. All right. Originally, the band wanted a clear vinyl record as well. So it would be almost like see-through. All right. But to do that, to make clear vinyl was very expensive and there was too many budget you know, restraints for that. So what they did is they had a, a clear cover 
and they stuck a white card inside and it gave the band name, songs, and credits. Uh, tracks like, uh, uh, there's one on there called Low Yo-Yo Stuff. There's a track called Sun Zoom Spark. That's one of my favorite Beefheart songs. Yeah, these the, the, the songs are the title. To me, the titles, everything is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a title track, Clear Spot. And then this is one of my favorites, too. Big Eyed Beans from Venus. Yeah. All right. Now, again, slightly more commercial than what he'd done in the past. Uh, definitely weird, okay? But it had like a blue ba- blues-based sound that... It got to number one ninety one in the U.S. So he had you want to hear something funny? That one song, her eyes are like a blue million miles, appear on the Big Lebowski. Yes, it's in the Big Lebowski that that scene. Yeah, I remember that. It's a great uh, song. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> now, so he had two albums that would crack the top two hundred in the same year. Pretty good, nineteen seventy two for him. Yeah, he would tour a lot uh, on those two albums. And uh, in 1974, the band began work on what would be called the Unconditionally Guaranteed album. And, you know, again, continuing a little bit more on a commercial trend. But there was tracks like Upon the My Oh My, Happy Love Song, Lazy Music. The band quit. They quit. Yeah, they, could, they couldn't take it. Like... Yeah, they didn't like this commercial direction as, at all. Uh it, it they didn't like the, the the songs the style nothing so they quit on them in, in, in entirety the band walked out now dude was, but you know what's funny they were suffering all this thing and then he started making some commercial music and they're like fuck it we don't want to work with you no more I know does that is make that crazy sense? does that make any sense no they, I think they just I don't know there had to be a lot of drugs involved it had to be <laughs> people not thinking right man. Cause I'm like, you know what? You listen to that, and they start. It looked like they were, and, and this is this is what I think. I think this is um, once he lost the Magic Band, I don't think he was never the same. Um, it was different. Um, he he would never have the same lineup of guys again, quality guys like that. Yeah. Um, but some of the later stuff, you know, we'll get into the, 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 the later albums in a few minutes. No, this, this um, stuff was good, but it wasn't nothing like the chemistry he had with the Magic Band. I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. But, I mean, you're already talking like eight albums already of great shit. Yeah. So, you know, I guess he's due for a downturn. Yeah. But, you know, it happens to everybody. Now, drummer Art Tripp said that when the band first heard that album, uh, they, they, they were horrified. Okay, and <laughs> they all up and left. But um, uh, Beefheart was now forced to put a new band together to tour the album. And, you know, he writes very complex shit, even though that was a little more commercial. But he had to put a band together that, you know, had to learn this stuff quick. And basically, he got this band together, but the arrangements and stuff that they used for these tracks, you wouldn't have even realized it was from the same album. They were almost like a bar band. Okay? <laughs> and instead of the, calling it the magic band, the critics who, who blasted this, they, they called it the tragic band. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Now, to compare, you know, to, to, to actually bring insult to injury, he would record with this lineup in late 74, the album Blue Jeans and Moonbeams. 
All right. And this album is considered like the captain's lowest point. But believe it or not, that album actually has some fans that you're going to know. Okay. Uh, the White Stripes, when they did that EP of that, they did some Captain Beefheart songs. Yeah. Early 2000s. Uh, there's a track on that album called Party of Special Things to Do. And that's the EP name of the White Stripes album. They covered that and two other songs from that album. All right. Yeah. And, you know, not too many people admit they like that album, but Jack White likes it. Mike, you know what's funny? You're a lot like Captain Beefheart. Like all these, uh, all the albums you put together, they're all called, it's like all the bands you talk, there's a little history later on where you're talking about it. You go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, like we talked about, like you had the, the way well, you did the lineup. You have White Stripe, you had these, you have all these bands. You know, that was and unintentional. Then, and that was really unintentional. But, but And then when you talk about it, they all, it all come like full circle, yeah. like with all the, all yeah. the things. It's a weird way. I'm, I'm just telling you that I've not noticed it now. Like the way we do like the booking for all the shows, you know? You know, maybe it's something I unconsciously do. Okay? Yeah. I might un- be unconsciously doing that. But, you know, look, rock and roll is is is... It's a connect the dots. There's always somebody listening to somebody else. And you kind of like get ideas and, you know, you rip each other off. People do it all the time. And and so, yeah, you know, then when you cover people's music, actually cover the songs, you know, a guy like Jack White, you know, he's listening to Captain Beefheart. You know that. Oh, yeah, of course. Without a doubt. He may no one may even realize it to ask him, but it's but it's true. Um, Now. His old friend Frank Zappa at this point would kind of like extend a helping hand to him in the fall of 75. Beefheart had just done a European tour and uh, had added some dates opening for Zappa and also opening for Dr. John that year. So he would actually appear himself on Zappa's album, One Size Fits All. He would be under the name Roland Red. All right, because he couldn't use the name Beefheart because he was on another label. He was actually brought in uh, on that. Uh, I think he played some harmonica or some gave some vocals a little bit on that album. But later in 75, he would also appear on Zappa's Bongo Fury album. And he great album. Yeah, great. it is a great album. He plays harmonica on that and uh, does some vocals as well. And he would tour that album as a full member of Zappa's band. So did he also play like the um, saxophone? Yeah. Yeah. He could play quite a, f- a few instruments. Saxophone. Yeah. was another one. I believe he did. Uh, in early 76, Zappa offered to pr- produce another album for Beefheart. Now the title was going to be called bat chain puller. And John French was brought back. Okay. Uh, on this. And he would play, I believe, guitar on this album, okay, Um, instead of drums. But they had a guy named John Thomas playing keyboards. Right. And uh, actually, I'm going to correct myself. John French was brought back on drums. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there's a. I I believe there's an album later on where he plays guitar. But um, most of the work on this album was completed, okay, when all of a sudden there was a, a, an unforeseen like business disaster between Zappa and his partner, er, Herb Cohen. All right. Yeah. There would be like an argument over copyrights, all kinds of shit. 
and and Zappa had to actually shelve the album. It was finished pretty much, but he had to shelve it and couldn't release it. Now John Thomas would the uh, keyboard player would leave the band and join the X Magic band members. Okay, and they had so let me ask you. So this is the album that they talk in the documentary that didn't come out for a long time. Was still on the shelf, right? right? It never officially came out in that form the way Zappa recorded it in '76. It didn't come out till 2012. But uh, in '78, Beefheart also would appear on an album by the Tubes. Okay. Uh, they would record an album called Now, and he would play stacks on a song called Kathy's Clone. They also would cover a Beefheart song from the Clear Spot album uh, called uh, My Head is My Only House Unless It Rains. Okay, the Tubes covered that. Now, later in the year, he also contributed a track to the soundtrack for the Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel film called Blue Collar. And that's a song called Hard Working Man. Um, this is one of the, fr- it might be the very first Captain Beefheart song I ever heard. Okay. Uh, it, have you heard of that movie, Blue Collar? No, I never, never, I never even, uh, into, I read it on this. I had no idea what it was. Okay. It's a great movie. It was written by Paul Schrader, who also wrote the script to Taxi Driver. Okay. Uh, I think the director is Jack Nitch, I think. I think he directed that. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, now, Richard Pryor is in it. Harvey Keitel is in it. Yafek Kodo is in it. All right. And they play these guys that work in a, in a car factory in Detroit. And, you know, their union is corrupt. And they're kind of torn on whether to expose it or not. And, you know, people end up getting fucking killed over things because stuff they know. It's a great movie. It's a great wow, movie. Wow, I got to check that out. Yeah, it's a great fucking movie. You have a chance to see it. it. Richard Pryor's in it. It's not a comedy. He's funny a little bit, you know, in it, you know, because it's Pryor. But but he's not. it's not a comedy at all. Uh, there's one scene, though, where he's in his house and the IRS comes to visit him and he tries to get uh, one of the kids from next door that he declared on his taxes as a dependent to come over <laughs> when, the ta- wow. when the tax guy is there. It's funny. It's funny. You got to see the movie. But the, the song called Hard Working Man, uh, it's a very commercial sounding song, believe it or not. It's just got like a very uh, blues, blues sounding. There's like a, a constant pounding beat that's supposed to be like a factory sound through the thing. Um, it was a track called, uh, it was that track, Hard Working Man, that the Cramps would cover later on in 91 on the album Look Mom, No Head. So they were fans also of, of him. Now, in 78, Beefheart now signed up with Warner Brothers to release a new album called Shiny Beast, Bat Chain Puller. So he would go back in the studio, now signed up with Warner Brothers. Zappa had nothing to do with this. And he kind of reworked the tracks from the original Bat Chain Puller that was produced by Zappa. Now, this album had tracks like The Floppy Boot Stomp, Harry Irene, and When I See Mommy, I Feel Like a Mummy. All right. 
<laughs> this album was like a return to form. Like he wasn't trying to be commercial at all. And uh, it, it, he got away from the sound of the last couple of albums. He, he kind of, with this, it was in 78, you know, punk and new wave had happened. So he kind of like experienced a bit of a career resurgence because some of these punk new wave bands admitted they were Beefheart fans. Like Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols uh, said that Trout Mask Replica is just, you know, one of the greatest albums ever. Okay. And he was saying that in 76, right? Now, 1980s album Doc at the Radar Station recorded for Virgin Records. Um, That would also help fuel his resurgence. John French would be brought back to play guitar on this one. This was the one I was thinking of. He would play. Yeah, he had quite a he, he had quite a love hate relationship with John Frank. I think he did. I think he he loved him and hated him. Like he liked working with him because he could trans he could transpose everything into into the right parts for the musicians to play. Not too many people could read his mind. You know, you, you know what shocked me to me that he was on David Letterman. He also did sign and he performed on Saturday Night Live, which I thought that was pretty impressive. <clears throat> yes, yes, he would get some interest in the end there. Uh, by mainstream media, okay. MTV, um, he he would he would have a problem with MTV. I'll get I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, John French was brought into play now, like he was playing slide guitar and guitar. There were songs on this album. Uh, one of the best is called Flavor Bud Living. There's also a song called Hot Hot Head. <laughs> Hot Head's a great. That's the opening track. Great fucking song. There's a song on there called A Carrot is as close as a rabbit gets to a diamond. All right. And then it was these titles, some of these titles that yeah. do the songs, it's like yeah. holy shit. Yeah, now when this album came out, uh, he was being called the father of new wave music for some reason. Okay. I get it. No, I get it. It's not so much the style, it's the attitude of just making these like albums just the way he wanted, nobody was really telling him how to do it. Yeah, you know, and and that was a punk rock attitude. And you know what? If you listen to, if you listen, if you put on the album, not every album sounded the same. He's definitely a guy that never sounded the same. No, no. I mean, a couple of those commercial sounding ones are probably about as close as he made to something sounding the same. But even yeah, even, but but not even that much, really. Yeah, I, I really think not even that much because he was like. Like, he was like a guy that can, um, I think he was always reinventing himself or reinventing the sound. He was just like one of these um, guys that was just an overthinker. I can't, I can't say I got to do this different. I can't, I can't have the same sound. I got to make this. I got to make this. I think he was and, a perfectionist. I think it happened yeah. exactly what he was hearing in his head, you know? Um, yeah. Now, there would be a final. Imagine him and Phil Spector in the same fucking oh, place they, trying to do an album. They would have shot each other. <laughs> it's okay. It's in jail. I think you're right. They would, they would, they, you think throwing people to dumpster going down the stairs? Yeah. These two motherfuckers would have probably do a duel and shot each other. Yeah, they do it right. Do a duel in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> now. Beefheart would make his final record in 1982, and it's called Ice Cream for Crow. And, I love that title. Yeah, it is a great title. And uh, it being the time of MTV, a video would be recorded for a few songs. They would do like a long-form video. And uh, 
But MTV wouldn't play it. They thought it was too fucking weird. I thought I was fucking... They they play all kind of shit, and they wouldn't play something that was too I weird? Know, I don't know what the problem was. Considering the guy was big in England, too, you would think that they would have, but they, they just thought it was weird. Uh, he would criticize the channel on David Letterman, okay? He would say, like, you know, because that whole thing, like, I want my MTV, that whole advertising campaign they had, you know, he was like, well, I don't want MTV if they don't want me. You know, I don't I don't care. You know, you know, you want to hear something, a big fuck you to MTV. I think that video made to the Museum of Art, right? It did. It did. It's because it was never shown. <laughs> Dude, think about think about that. He he he. He gave out an artist, and he still winded up making a video that went into a museum of art. Yeah, right. How fucking crazy is that? I know, I know. Well, you know what's even more crazy is he was having a resurgence right here in 1982 of his music. Uh, you know, nothing grand, nothing. You know, he wasn't making selling millions, but it, it, people were interested in him again, and uh, he decided to drop out of the business. All right, so he would. But, you know, what his first love was, was art. Yeah. And, you know, even though he was doing this, uh, you know, almost 20 years, like 17 years of, of, of making music, he always sculpted and he always painted, especially painted. All right. He was painting through all those years. That was just something he did. All right. And he, he kind of knew... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think he kind of felt that the music ran its course, that he had done everything he wanted to do with music. Uh, he was getting older. There was some health issues. Um, you know, he would eventually get multiple sclerosis. Okay. And, uh, you know, he wanted to concentrate on the painting and he would have a 20 year career selling his paintings they they did sell for quite a bit yeah and they sold well um but december 17th 2010 he would pass away from complications based on multiple sclerosis uh very sad i remember when he died you know you hadn't heard from him for a while like he was those 20 years or so that he was 25 years that he was selling his paintings you hardly ever heard about him anymore you know, but well, he well, went back to probably he probably went back to his first love. Right. Well, he he was married, okay, and you know him and his wife. I think he settled in California, back in California, and uh, you know, but he really dropped out of the business. But at that time, during those twenty five years that he dropped out, uh, he was selling his art. But in the music world, there was a a, a resurgence of interest in his music. You know, what one thing. I, I always feel that one thing like the punk new wave scene in the seventies, late seventies, I think what that did a lot for people is it opened their eyes and opened their mind to things. Okay. Uh, Americans can sometimes be closed minded. That's why you have people that are bigger in Europe. Europe. Europeans tend to be a little more open-minded when it comes to music from what I see my experience. Yeah, they even say that in the documentary they were talking about that. Did, uh, did they say that? Yeah, I think they did. The guy um, was saying the European had like a better um, taste for music. They just like really different sounds. Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be commercial sounding like 
most American fans kind of like to hear the big stuff, okay, uh, instead of the underground stuff. Now, uh, you know, I think the world in some ways in those 25 years caught up a little bit with Captain Beefheart. Don't get me wrong. Captain Beefheart is still out there. He's still way ahead of his time. Uh, our buddy John McCarroll said that he makes Zap- Zappa look normal. <laughs> and, you know, that's a funny remark because he really was. I, I think Beefheart is just one of the most original people you could ever listen to. Really, there's nothing that sounds like it, especially Trout Mask Replica, but even the other stuff. Very interesting stuff. And the world caught up with him a little bit. Record companies were re-releasing the music. Um, in 2012, after he had passed away, Bat Chain Puller, the original version of it, the Zappa-produced version, would come out. Yep. Okay. And uh, people got to hear what that sounded like. And it was, you know, different. It was different than the, uh, the version he had done later on Shiny Beast. Okay. It's a different, different sound. Yeah, totally. And also, you know what's funny? He's one of the guys that um, when they had that Universal Fire in 2008, he lost a lot of his stuff was there that he lost. Oh, uh, his his paintings or the music? There was painting. There was a little bit. They had like a little thing, a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's right. He was part of that. Yeah. And that weird, that weird thing that they had at Universal, there was that strange fire and a lot of yeah. shit got destroyed there from hundreds of artists. Wow. Wow, that's right. That's right. It's very sad. Yeah. Some of that's lost forever. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So that's all I got for you, Mr. Rossi. Are you a what a, this is this was a full packed show, man. We got over um we got about almost eighty minutes of um, you know, great fucking um information. I think um I think this show would do well if you're a beef heart uh, fan, dude. Yeah. Mike, yeah. you went through the whole career from art to music to back to art by the end. Yeah, I mean that that's that was his life. He came full circle. He started out as an artist, became a musician and a, you know, always a, but the art was always there. You know, it was he was an artist that just happened to become a musician. Do you think he went to the musician more just because of his parents cuz they didn't want him to be an artist so they didn't think that he was like kind of weird or something? You know what's funny is like what I mentioned in the beginning about his parents not supporting him. They would eventually support him okay when he was young they had problems with it because i think they thought they did, they thought he might be gay or something yeah but uh and and no indication he ever was but but once he was shown as very talented then they realized they had a, a genius on their hands so they kind of i mean they even let him drop out of school okay so you know, at that point, I think they did support him a little bit. Uh, he was an only child. I mean, Frank Zappa has said that he thought that Beefheart was kind of spoiled growing up. You know, maybe get me a Pepsi. Yeah, well, it wasn't. It wasn't just that. It was like you know, he had everything handed to him. You know, a little bit as a child, as an only child. You know, that's what happens. But uh, you know, he 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 was an artist became a musician but always had that art core you know that's good that's good stuff yeah so mike yesterday um let's talk about the new little uh facebook chat group that we're gonna be doing talk about music and stuff like that that we'll probably do once a month maybe middle of the month we'll get a bunch of people together just talk about the um about rock and roll music and what kind of shows we should start doing 
Yeah, well, for, for those who don't know, we have a, uh, a new group page called the Rock Show Podcast Group Page on Facebook. You can look it up. It's join if you, if you haven't already. We, we'd like to have you on. Um, what we started doing was um, we, we're having the, the rooms feature on Facebook. Uh, we will do like a video chat maybe once a month. Anybody wants to be part of it, you could have a whole bunch of people on at the same time. Yeah, uh, just let us know, you know, because we could have up to eight people. So you want to do people that actually want to talk about music, maybe for about from uh, 30 minutes to 45 minutes. Right, right. Maybe, yeah, 45 minutes. That's what we did yesterday, right? About yeah. that. Uh, we had our buddies Dan Scott and John McCarroll on. And, you know, we were throwing ideas on what to do with shows and talking about music and telling stories and, you know, keeping it pretty much about music, which is what we're going to do on that page. Nothing else. Um, yeah, no politics. No nothing. Politics, we just talk nothing. about music. Right. And you know right. what? Because, uh, you know what? Everybody already stressed out with all this shit going on in the world. We just want to forget a little bit about nothing. It's just listen to some good old fashioned rock and roll. Exactly. And, um, you know what, like me and Mike, we, we don't only do rock and roll, we've done country, we've done even rap, we've done uh, metal, like pretty much many genders we've been doing. Yeah, we do reggae, uh, you know, all different stuff. But what I want to do, too, is come up with ideas. And we might have a couple of special podcasts just within those video chats. We'll let you know about that. I got a couple ideas I'd like to yeah. to, to bring to uh, fruition, all right, and try to do. Uh, and it'll be just special for the group page. We got like, I think almost 200 people in the group. So, you yeah, know, definitely could be fun to do with a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, might as well give my information. Okay. Um, yep. if you're looking for me on Instagram, it's rocker, Mike, two, one, two rocker, Mike, two, one, two. I'm on Twitter, rocker, Mike three. And then on Facebook, uh, you can look for me on the Michael Baker or, under the uh, Rock Show podcast group page. Yeah, we, we, you know what? That page grew pretty fast. We got a lot of uh, people that got in it right away. Yeah. And uh, so far, people are pretty good with the rules, you know? Oh, yeah. Nobody's been fucking up. Yeah. So, where can we find you, Mr. Rossi? Uh, but wait up. Before we uh, finish this, um, episode yeah. 80, we got a huge album for episode 80. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The making of the first Doors album, the self titled Doors album. And that should be very good, man. I can't wait to hear all the what you got for that and um, how that album. Because Mike, eighty episodes. I know that it's going to be a hundred. Can you believe that? I so know. yeah, to get in contact with me, you can get me on Instagram, Facebook, on the uh, Rocker Rocker Mike and Rob uh, Rock Show page. Um, you can also get me on the Lumped Up page. And um, everything, uh, every anything connected with Lumped Up, you can find me in. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, uh, YouTube, uh, and uh, pretty soon, hopefully, we start making some live videos soon. I hope so. I you know, because um, I think once we start <laughs> doing that, because um, you know what, it's great doing this on the phone, and um, you know, you know what, a, a lot of people do like uh, some of the shows that we've been doing. People like the whole thing with the pictures and stuff. I got to look up stuff and yeah. I spend hours just putting this shit together. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, you do a great job with that, Rob. So I try to, uh, we try our best here. But um, hopefully, if you guys got questions, 
Um, you need anything answered? We're, we we contact people right away. A lot of people hit us off on Facebook. A lot of people actually hit us on YouTube. There's pretty much we got a few people that hit yeah. us up, and Mike uh, Rock a Bike pretty much answer your question pretty quick. So any questions, um, anything you want to know about, or if you got a suggestion of a show, uh, just um, send it's it to tough. us on Twitter or on or YouTube. Definitely. Uh, Facebook, I answer very quick, too. So, uh, yeah. you know, especially on the group page, the Rock Show Podcast group page. Yeah. Did I say Instagram also? Yeah, I did, right? Yeah, getting lumped up on Instagram, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's it, Mike. Another good show, man. So uh, next week, we got episode 80, and we'll talk about the making of the Doors First album. So okay. For you guys that um, never heard us, and if you do hear us, uh, it should be a great show. Mike gets a lot of information. He brings a lot of detail. And he also gets into some stuff that you might not know of the band. I try. I try to bring education to the masses. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike. And like always, remember, don't, don't get, get drunk, drunk. Get lumped up. Talk to you later. Bye-bye, people.